Hey everybody, I'm Aiden Mattis. Welcome back to the Lore Lodge. As you can see, there is no co-host next to me because he decided he needed to be in New York with his girlfriend doing, you know, adult family things. And I had no interest in doing so and also no girlfriend with which to spend the weekend. So, uh, I, I would be flying solo if it were not for a friend of mine here. This is Benjamin Olshin, uh, PhD. And he and I are going to have a conversation about some of the stuff we've talked about on the channel a lot. Obviously, we've got a video on Ancient Apocalypse coming out this uh, week. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply had a video on Ancient Apocalypse come out on Friday. So you guys all got to see that, see what is basically an hour and a half long introduction to Graham Hancock's work. And Benjamin and I were talking at a meeting uh, about two months ago now, just about this whole concept and lost civilizations and the ancient past. And he mentioned that he had written books on it. <laughs> so I figured that was an opportunity that I was not really able to pass up. So I invited him on, and he's going he's gonna to talk us through some of what he's learned in his career as a professor, as a researcher, an educator. And, you know, hopefully we'll, we'll get to have a conversation about not just sort of the interesting stuff, but also, you know, how can, how can academia improve in regards to this subject, in regards to looking at the past in a less orthodox and mainstream way and opening our eyes and our minds to something that we may simply just have not quite understood about the past. So without, uh, you know, any further ado, Benjamin, do you want to introduce yourself to everybody? Yes. And thank you very much for having me on this, uh, on this show. Uh, so, uh, I am an academic for better or for worse. I'm retired now, uh, which is for better. And so I can speak freely on all these subjects. And I have to say that even when I was in an academic institution, I was given kind of free reign to research and write about what I wanted. So my initial training, you know, as an undergrad was in classics. So Latin, Greek, ancient history, which I loved. And I had a kind of odd undergrad career that I also did a physics minor. So I've always been interested in both of these things like history, classics, and also science. And I was kind of lost for a while. And I had a professor who said, you should do a PhD in the history and philosophy of science and technology. I had no idea what that was. <laughs> I pursued it. Um, I went to University of Toronto, which I was just talking about with our host uh, a bit earlier. And actually, one of my thesis advisors was the guy who was one of the main researchers on the Antikythera mechanism, that clock computer that was found in the Mediterranean, which some listeners may know about. So right. that was fantastic. So I have a PhD in the history and philosophy of science and technology. And my first work was things like cartography and exploration. So I looked at the Piri Reish map, which Hancock talks about. Uh, I did a lot of stuff about potential pre-Columbian contacts across the Atlantic, et cetera. And at the same time I did, we're not gonna talk about this today, I did a lot of philosophy of physics, things about the matrix, uh, what's called digital physics, virtual reality, great material for some other time. Mm -hmm. Um, but I began to be interested in, a number of years ago, uh, knowledge systems, it's the technical term, and how ancient people had different kinds of knowledge. How did they build monumental structures? How did they have knowledge of medicine, uh, et cetera? And I just 
worked in that field for a long time, writing papers. And then finally, I just came out with a book in 2019, fairly recently, called Lost Knowledge. And it's an academic book, but it systematically looks at what I think are a lot of fun topics. I know Aiden is keen to talk about some of them in particular, ancient tales of flight and flying vehicles, uh, Atlantis, I tackled Atlantis, and I'll talk about that, et cetera. And I guess the one other thing I'll say in terms of introduction, well, two other things is one is I'm not an archeologist. And I know Aiden's interested in archeology. span I'm a person who works with texts. I'm a historian. Um, and also that my attitude towards scholarly work is, yeah, I agree, you know, academia has its problems, but in my own work, I do aim for professional standards. So, you know, my books were published by academic publishers. And I believe that when you investigate something, you try to go to that standard. So at the risk of talking a little too much, I want to give an example because I often say this in talks. So in my last knowledge book, some of the material I work with was in Chinese. So there are these ancient Chinese accounts of these flying machines. So I speak Chinese. I lived in Taiwan. I've studied Chinese, but you know, there's a certain standard. So when I wrote these chapters and translated these passages, I sent them off to a guy at Penn, a very famous Sinologist, a guy named Nathan Sivan, and I basically asked for his blessing. And that's what you do. You don't you know, refute or spin stuff off yourself. You look at professional standards. And the analogy I use, it's kind of silly, but I, I play soccer uh, twice a week with this group nearby and they're pros, these guys from West Africa, Venezuela, Colombia, and you know, you play to that level of play. So I think that's important as we have this conversation today that my approach is always look for the highest standard in terms of research, investigation, et cetera, about right. this material. Go for yeah, it. and that's, I mean, that's how I was taught. So I think that's also a pretty big issue that I see when, with a lot of this content, not just on, on you know, Netflix and everything, but also with YouTube and the, the open access to being able to produce content and information is that there's a lot of people who have an interest and there's very few of them who have the training to necessarily know what to look for. So a lot of people will connect dots in their brains that seem at first glance like, oh, well, these things must be connected. Some of the people I see it the most from are, um, are you familiar with the, uh, the Tartaria conspiracy theory? Oh, I, I read it through one of the things you had posted. Yeah. yeah. So there's, so there's that where you get, that's exactly what that is. A bunch of people look at historical concepts. They don't really know how to research them or even like where to go to find the correct information. So right. they just come up with these connections in their head and it seems to make sense. But then once you have the background and the knowledge and everything, you start to see through all of the places in which they kind of made little leaps and bounds. And I think that's what tends to happen with Graham Hancock is he does the same kind of thing where he he's a smart guy for sure, very good at presenting information, very good at discussing things and building an argument. But there's certain stuff that he that he says and does when I watch his work where I'm like, okay, well, that's that's a simple, you you just missed a step here. Like, you missed a step of the process. You didn't check, uh, you know, who who is this source from? It's like in Fingerprints of the Gods, which is a book that we, you know, we talked about a bunch of times in the episode on this from Friday. In Fingerprints of the Gods, he's citing people, historians, art historians, uh, anthropologists, archaeologists. The problem is he didn't do the source criticism on those people. So obviously, when you're when you're writing a research paper, when you're doing a research topic, you sit there, you collect your bibliography, and then you go, all right, 
what are the best sources out of my bibliography? Is there anybody I shouldn't? Um, and of course, you you and I know this, this is more for the audience benefit, but when you're doing that that academic process, there's multiple steps to it. It's not just, I have a theory, let me go find the stuff that agrees with it. And I think you see a lot of that confirmation bias, whether it's with Hancock or the Tartaria type people or, uh, you know, suspicious observers is somebody we've talked about on this channel because he uh, he's very much the crustal displacement, Charles Hapgood, Chan Thomas yeah. type. Um, it's so nice to sit here and say those things and have you be like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. <laughs> I, I rarely have that. <laughs> so it's nice. But yeah, so there's that, that tendency to look for the information that confirms what you're saying rather than oh, yeah. looking at all of the information and seeing if the broadest possible study still conforms to your narrative. Or see if you find something that, that disagrees with what you're doing. And, and you know, this is important that you need a strong element of humility. And it is true that sometimes academics get attacked for not being humble. Yeah. And I've you know, met all stripes, but you have to be humble. And that's what I was saying about like the Sinology, the Chinese studies thing. You have to kind of go and say, I'm not a China expert. Is this correct? And, and it's yeah. tricky because on the one hand, as a researcher, and if you're writing books like I am, you got to be assertive in some way because you do have your own ideas, your own models, your own hypotheses, or in my case, more conjectures. Uh, but on the other hand, you have to have humility and say, I may be wrong. The evidence may point elsewhere. And, and that's the other thing, you know, since we you wanted to talk about Hancock a little in this intro, is that this is for the audience and it's something not to treat the audience as students, but it came up a lot when I was teaching is people don't understand what a theory or hypothesis is versus a conjecture. A lot of stuff that's done, even in science, is conjectures. And conjectures are ideas that we've assembled from looking at things. You know, in my book, I'm very clear, I'm making a number of conjectures. And that's all. You know, these things, like we were talking about, you know, these ancient ideas and, and you know, things may not be provable, but like we simply won't know. And I think that's the problem, too, that we get things like Hancock's theory. It's like it's not a theory. It's a conjecture. Yeah, and it's maybe, a hypothesis you know, at best. Right. At best, a hypothesis. And then, as you point out, it's it's kind of a, a de facto one not based on evidence. We're ignoring contrary evidence. Yeah. And one thing that that I saw cropping up with Ancient Apocalypse with the first two episodes uh, I didn't notice it as heavily when I watched the first episode, which deals primarily with Indonesia, because that's just outside oh, yeah. of my knowledge base. I just, I, I don't know much about East Asian history or South Asian history. The second episode, he gets into talking about Mexico, and I'm not the best, well, I'm not the most well-versed, but I know enough about Mexican history to know that the Olmecs are not the Mayans, are not the Toltecs, are not the Aztecs. Um, I, I know enough about that. I know that the, the Uto-Aztecan language spans from, you know, up in the U.S. Southwest all the way down into the Yucatan. Like, we've got a whole bunch of stuff here, but that's about the extent that I knew. I knew they didn't have horses, and I knew they built pyramids. Uh, <laughs> and most of that was from Age of Empires, if I'm being perfectly honest, which <laughs> I, I still credit to this day. I credit Age of Empires 2 with why I am such a geek about history, because my dad needed somebody to play with. He saw his three-year-old son and went, this will do. Uh, Whatever gets you interested. <laughs> so I was playing as the Byzantine Empire, at, you know, three years old. Um, but yeah, so I, I knew enough to, as I watched, be like, wait a second, Something he's saying here sounds not quite right. Something's not correct. And so I started looking into it. And one of the big things that immediately struck me is his narrative of Quetzalcoatl, who, oh, of yeah. course, is a creator god. 
in the the old Mexica myths. He's a being who, in some in some stories, he the creation is is more ambiguous. But in some versions of the story, he goes and he crafts modern humans from the bones of the people who preceded us right. in one of these destructions. I believe both the Aztecs and the Maya have five destructions. Um, and and this is, of course, where a lot of the later people like Hapgood and Thomas and all that got their whole, you know, five cycles of human destruction and all that, which we've talked about at length on this show. Um, so looking at looking at that, that's when I think, and it's odd because it took until that point, I've been following Graham Hancock since like 2019. It took until that point, re-watching Ancient Apocalypse, that I really went, wait a second. He missed something here. And if he missed this, what else about this show right. am I do I need to ask questions about? So originally my plan was to basically go through the show and say, here's Graham's argument throughout the thing. Here's what I think about it. And that was going to be the episode we did on Ancient Apocalypse. What we ended up doing was instead I started fact-checking Graham live but then i realized it's really difficult to fact check graham live because he'll deliberately leave a gap in his argument for you to attack and then fill the gap in the next segment sure. so it's sort of a post hoc you know, yeah. Way of arguing thing. yeah and and some people might look at that and be like oh okay you know it's just he's just getting to the point no i think it's deliberate i think he's just very good at arguing and he knows that it that he can sit there and he can just you know lead you to where you need to be and i'm not going to sit here and say that he's a, a hack or a fraud or something because i think graham genuinely believes what he's saying personally um you know and and this is i, I give that benefit of the doubt to most people right. whose work right. i criticize is you know even if i disagree with what you're saying i'm not going to accuse you of being a grifter i'm not going to accuse you of pretending right. to believe this for money there's a few people i will uh you know one of them I, i've mentioned before but um you know looking at that his narrative quetzalcoatl is quetzalcoatl comes across the sea from the east that he is not a creator being that he's a civilizing figure and therefore maybe we're dealing with some of these you know, pre-Columbian crossings between Africa or Europe and the United States and Mexico, what would become those countries. So you mentioned that a little bit while we were talking before the show, sort of these these pre-Columbian contacts that have been theorized. Right. So I'm curious, since that is such a an important factor in Ancient Apocalypse and in Hancock's wider work, what what are your thoughts regarding the the possibility and the evidence for or against some of these voyages that are suggested, like the Egyptians and the the Maya having contact. Well, and there are a lot. I mean, um, so I, and I should point out that uh, when I did my master's and PhD, uh, the person who was my thesis advisor was a specialist in ancient maps and cartography. So he kind of pushed me in that, and I didn't really know. And I, anything about that. And I was interested because I also do design work and artwork. And he said, well, if you like that and you like classical history, then you should do ancient exploration of maps. So basically my entire PhD thesis is on this question of how the Atlantic was explored and by whom prior to Columbus. Right. So of course we have the Vikings, but yeah, so are there earlier? The Vikings, which is you know, well-established archaeology, yep. uh, archaeologically. In fact, I just wrote a book review of, of a new book by a guy named Paolo Chiesa, and he talks about um, how that knowledge of the Vikings may have percolated down into Southern Europe and mm -hmm. inspired Columbus. It's quite interesting. But I've read all the different interpretations. For example, this is the one you probably know, the Almec heads, right. which look very African, West mm -hmm. African. And so, you know, when you read the text, it's like, yeah, there are suggestive things that saying, that say that, you know, West Africans may have set out from 
places like Mali, you know, that right. region, which is not a very long crossing to the New World. And if it was going to be anybody, it probably would be Mali, considering right, yeah, the money I mean, they had. You know, you have a sophisticated civilization, et cetera. When I was in Brazil, you know, there's all kinds of theories about what are called the Sete Cidades, the seven cities, which is this like advanced civilization somewhere in the interior that was founded by people like the Phoenicians, mm -hmm. right? That's the other. But again, you have to kind of draw a line and say, yes, there are many conjectures. There's fragmentary evidence. There's no hard evidence for any of this. And, right. and again, so the problem is you have to sort of, we collectively have to be content with that. It's like, there's stuff that we just don't know. It's mm -hmm. kind of ironic that uh, among you know, many other things I've taught was I taught Taoist philosophy for okay. years. Taoist philosophy is just like, you know, sometimes you just don't know. And the, the state of human existence is we don't know. We don't know why we're born. We don't know when we'll die. And so you could apply it to these pragmatic things. It's like, yeah, there's interesting evidence. The Olmec heads are, are strange. There's lots of other stuff. There's some peculiar maps. There's some strange textual mentions of this and that across the Atlantic. But that's very different from saying little checkboxes. Yes, the Chinese came here first, like Gavin Menzies. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you know him. He I've heard the that. argument that the Chinese got to South America first. But yeah. even then, isn't it supposed to be like 1200? So they wouldn't be the first of the Americas, just right, South America. First. Right. Yeah. But, but I always say, you know, what's really interesting is just looking at this, the amount of material and saying that, and also that we have the, the cojones to say, what we have is what we have when we can't make definitive collusion, you know, conclusions about this. Sure. And yeah, I wrote a, a 300 page thesis looking at, I, I just laughing as I remember being, I guess I was about your age, just reading book after yep. book and text after text in the original languages. And it's like, eh, whatever, you know, we know what we know. It's so. the original languages part that really sucks, isn't it? <laughs> well, I did, you know, stuff in Latin, Greek, oh, all nine yards. But, I, um, I am I am very jealous of the, the, the generations before mine where they actually did force people to learn Greek and Latin because yeah, exactly. they basically yeah. looked at us and they went, Eh, we we could ask you to do that, but you probably won't. So you can hack it. You can hack it. Yeah, you know. I and gr granted, I I took German, and I can I can read German well enough to get the gist of what's being said in a document. But like, I wish I had Greek or Latin because I feel like they would open up a whole new world. And reading Herodotus in the original must be yeah. a lot, a lot more enlightening than reading Herodotus in English, where you're just it feels jilted. Well, yeah, and this relates to your your main theme here, which is if people read stuff only in translation, they're always going to miss something, and that's yeah. okay. I mean, if you don't, you know, read the 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 source language, you know, and you want to just read stuff to learn, it's fine. But when you start, not you, but when a author starts making conjectures and they haven't read the original, it's like, or at least find somebody like I told you, a, a friend and mm -hmm. classmate. Of who is an Icelandic specialist, he was like, here, give me the Icelandic. I'll look at it for you. I'll tell you what terms you should be thinking about. Again, you have to kind of tip that yeah. hat to the expert. Um, so it's important. And, and again, I don't want to diss other people, but you got to do the grunt work. You know, yeah. not you again, but people who have their own TV shows. Yeah, the people who have the money to do it. Which right, I, right. I will but, say, there's a great degree of irony that I noticed in in Graham Hancock going and doing this. And I'm sure that the math in his head is by me doing this, 
I am calling attention to these subjects and these strange right. artifacts and sites all over the planet. Right. But I, I look at it and I'm like, that show definitely had a multi-million dollar budget. They could have picked any one of the sites that he talks about and it invested in a full-scale dig. And oh, yeah. Like, yeah. It, it yeah, drives me insane. Use of the money. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And also, it's like, it's kind of mean to diss archaeologists because, you know, it's not a well-paid profession. Yeah. And archaeologists work painstakingly on a small subject matter for years and years and bring all those, you know, again, I did this, like, do your master's and your PhD. Mm -hmm. And I had to work my way through graduate school. And I worked as a janitor in graduate school. It's like, mm -hmm. don't come and tell me that my knowledge is useless or right. that I'm a stick in them. I was like, Man, I got methods. Again, it's I I love the soccer analogy. It's as if I were to go down to my soccer squad and say, I know you've been playing since you were 10, and I've only been playing since I was 40, but let me show you. Right. Like, you don't do that. It, it's it's just not, not done. So that's the other issue with these kind of people. They just sort of waltz in and say, da-da-da, and that really bugs yeah. me. And my, my primary issue, and I, I had said this a few times throughout that episode, is not – with archaeologists as a community is not with individual archaeologists, but with the types who will kind of come out and give the whole community a bad name by doing this stuff. Like uh, there, there was one guy who who sat for an interview about ancient apocalypse, and basically the entire time he's not arguing with anything Hancock actually said in the documentary. He's not arguing with anything Hancock said in the last twenty years. He's arguing with stuff Hancock said in Fingerprints of the Gods. And I'm like, okay, but he's written multiple books and right. done hours and hours of podcast appearances and talks and university. Like, like you're how how are you how can you sit here and critique his work from three decades ago and expect us yeah. to take you seriously when you say that his work from this year is not valid? So I think that well, that's where a big piece yeah. of the problem lies is sort of this this unwillingness to attack the argument. And to attack right. the character instead. Right. Yeah. And, which is bad on both sides. And, and it's funny because, you know, I listened to your whole Hancock mm -hmm. podcast uh, yesterday. And one of the things you don't talk about, which is fine, which I want to bring up, though, sure. is the academic world. Like, mm -hmm. you know, what are academics like? And, and in my book, I talk about that because, you know, I, I absolutely critique not just uh, Hancock, also Charles Hapgood, yep. you know, who wrote about the Puri Reich map and some others, John Anthony West, who kind of, you know, preceded these people. Right. But also in my book, I talk about academics since I was in that world. And, and I think the problem with academics is that they, many of them don't understand the language in which lay people work, because they're lay people like you, you're sort of a lay person, uh, that there are people like you that are interested in this stuff that aren't necessarily going to function like academics. Yeah. And I think the academic world also doesn't understand that out in the lay world, there are people who may make wrong conclusions, but are really excited about mm -hmm. knowledge. So I'll speak to a specific example that you would like. So many years ago, I think it was in Halifax, Nova Scotia, this guy invited me to come up and speak about uh, transatlantic exploration. Right. Right. And I was the only academic, and he warned me. He says, everybody else is going to say that, you know, the, the, the West Africans were here first and that you no know, Incan civilization is influenced by the Egyptians. He goes, are you okay with that? So I was like, yeah, it's fine, or whatever. So I went up, and he paid for everything, and I was happy to be there. And uh, the first night, we all ate dinner together. Then I listened to a bunch of talks. And a lot of the talks, I was like, these people are completely out to lunch. It was fine. <laughs> 
But by the third day, when it was my turn to talk, I said, you know, I want to tell you guys that it's obvious I'm here as the resident critic. Mm-hmm. I said, a lot of what I've heard, I don't agree with. I don't think there's evidence. I said, but on the other hand, it's amazing to see a group of like 50 people who are everything from lawyers to steel workers, whatever, who are excited about this stuff. Right. And I said, I'm not judging. I said, it's just cool to talk and have beer with you. And it was a great bunch of people. And and once they saw that I wasn't going to be in their face about being an academic and they weren't in my face about insisting that their theories were mm-hmm. right, we got along fine. And we kind of, you know, the cliche, agreed to disagree. And it was fun. But that those kind of interfaces almost never happen. Academic conferences are for me. Mm-hmm. And you guys have your own YouTube channels in which you do your weird stuff. And, and that, that's, that's one thing that... that- that I've I've said to a few of the professors in the academics I know, especially the people who have, you know, been doing it for years and years and they're still making, you know, pennies because there's no money in academia. But a lot of the people that I've talked to who are, you know, some of the, the some of the most talented lecturers I've ever met, they they don't get the where the disconnect is. They think that the disconnect is between people who are in academia you know, understanding how everything works and those who are outside of academia, well, they're, you know, they don't get it. In reality, I think it's the other way around. I think there's a lot of people who don't have the money or the time to go into academia who are interested in all of these topics, but they obviously just are not in a position to sit and study it. That does come from a, a position of of some privilege where, you know, I, I was able to study history and not engineering because my stepdad has an MBA. Like So right. my parents already have their master's degrees and they and now I'm next in line to go get the Ph.D., is basically where where we've netted out is you know that I'm I'm at the point where I had the the resources and the ability to go do that. Not everyone has that, but I think that th- th- platforms like this, like YouTube, and speaking as somebody who's kind of got a foot in both worlds, being in grad school yeah. and also being a content creator, you know what I see is there's there's a huge platform, a huge market for some of these more talented you know lecturers and writers and researchers. To go and provide all of that knowledge to a much larger, broader group, and you know, maybe they're not going to sit there and, and ask the same questions that a history student or an archaeology student would, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they're asking stupid questions, right? And, and they're, they're you're able to educate, team. yeah, and you're able to educate a much larger group of people. Right. I mean, I yeah. I speak every every week to more people than most of my professors have taught in their life. Like that's because I have, right. I, I put out a video, it, it gets 200,000 views. And right. now I've communicated to more people than people who do this for a career and spent 20 years in academia to get there. And I'm not saying that to toot my own horn or brag. I'm saying that because I, I wish that some of these professors would really get in gear and take their lectures and just start posting them on YouTube. Well, and the, and the two sides of this are, so the, the if I may use this expression, like the lay audience uh, the, the academic side doesn't understand that there's a lay audience, like as you put it, that doesn't necessarily understand the methods, but is is interested, you know, is keen, as I say. And then from my side, what I would say to the audience is really the only thing that's missing is an understanding, and this is a topic that maybe we'll get to because it's an important one, is just the fancy word is called hermeneutics. It's mm-hmm. the science of interpretation. And I think that's that's the missing link. Like once the lay audience understands that there's really need to be certain methodologies for interpretation, just like there are, like 
my grandfather was a plumber, you know, speaking of the two worlds, like there's a way to fix a sink, as I showed my daughter the other day, there's a way to put it, and there's a way not to. So even when you get to PhD level stuff, it's the same thing, like there's a way to approach an ancient text or an ancient archeological site, and there's a way not. And I think once we can agree on those ground rules, mm -hmm. Then we can have conversations. And, you know, I have students who would ask me everything. And I think you're probably going to ask me for like UFOs to, you know, ghosts and apparitions like, you know, my wife believes in. Mm -hmm. And that, that's fine as long as we have some common language for uh, addressing that. And it's cool. Um, and the one other thing I'll say, because I always bring this up, is my father-in-law mm -hmm. who's from Taiwan. He passed away recently. He had an eighth grade education. That was it. But he could read and write Chinese. He was he had read all kinds of amazing books. He knew about the I Ching and all this kind of stuff. And so he was one of these people that put in the hard work without all the formal educational credentials. And, right. and so I was able to have great conversations with him and you know, and and find I don't like the expression middle ground, but find these huge common interests to talk about. So I think that's where it's at. And yeah, and professors will reach way more people. Oh yeah, that that I know without doubt because I've done a few other podcasts, and that's what appeals to me about that. It's so please go on. Yeah. It's pretty incredible. I mean, I, some of the, some of the people I've seen, I, like uh, there was one. God, it's killing me that I can't remember his name off the top of my head. You might know who I'm talking about. The guy who wrote uh, 1177, the the book about, or yeah, 1177, the book about the uh, the Bronze Age collapse. Oh, I was just looking at that. Yes, um, he gave a TED talk on this. I, I didn't see the TED talk. I saw uh, he was basically presenting it at a conference to in a classroom setting. But I, I think it was probably the same, you know, the same talk. Who sitting there, you know, the guy is funny. He doesn't. You don't feel like it's slow. He's entertaining. It, you look at him, and you're like, this guy could host a show the same way that William Shatner does. Right. Like, yeah. good presenter. Uh, him killing me that I can't recall his name. Uh, and then some other people who have done the same thing. You look at uh, Michael Heiser, who sadly just passed away. Um, he, Naked Bible Podcast, you know, would just go and post his his ministry talks. And they've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of views of people who otherwise would never had an opportunity to look at any of this. Um, and then you, you know, uh, Jordan Peterson, obviously, you know, had achieved superstardom <laughs> from doing precisely that. He, yeah. he just started filming his lectures and posting them on YouTube. And then, you know, boom, professor who disagrees with Bill, which would usually be 24 hours in and out of the news cycle, turns into a guy who becomes one of the you know most influential names. Eric Klein was 1177's name? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. Beautiful. Uh, for those who are watching, if you have any interest in the Sea Peoples and the Bronze Age Collapse... Eric Klein, fantastic talk on it. Uh, one of those things where I was, I was just sitting there and bored and found that and decided to watch it. Uh, very, very, very interesting. Um, I'll, I'll put that into the description too, uh, since we mentioned it. But yeah, so I think it, we definitely, you know, that's a, that's a good thing that I, I wish, I wish I could have that conversation with more academics that, you know, there's, there is an audience there and people well, just need to understand that. So let me highlight something then related to this, this sort of duality, and I'll do a little promo sure. at the same time. So um, I was interested in all this stuff that we're talking about. And, you know, again, we'll get to this talking about tales of ancient flying machines. And we'll talk about it. That's what I wanted to get into next, actually, was yeah, ancient well, flying yeah. machines. <laughs> so here's a good preface. So I decided that um, it was like 2018 or so. And I said, you know, I'm just going to, 
write a book about all this stuff. And, and and I'll talk a little bit about the background. I've been doing bits and pieces of this dating back to when I was living in Asia. So I write the manuscript and in academic publishing, you write a manuscript and it's sent out to reviewers, but they're actually readers, right? It's not a review of a book. They're just looking at your manuscript. So it gets sent out to two history of science people. It was very funny because one guy was sort of fairly conservative history of science academic, very nice guy. And the other was um, this guy who was also an academic, but much more hippie, like, this is cool, wow, et cetera. So I had two inputs on my text and one was like, you gotta speculate more, dude, this is so cool. And the other person was like, uh, you need to footnote and cite more of this stuff and you need more evidence. This. So I had to like twist and meld the book. Right. To, and, and then even when the book was done, one reviewer said, it's too speculative. This is like when the book was published. Another reviewer said, it's too like precise and just recounting the evidence. I was like, you just can't, you can't please, please people. people. Right. It's like, but I, but the book uh, was good for me because it just forced me to really wrestle with the questions that you asked is like, what does this stuff mean? Like, mm -hmm. is it true? Is it not true? You know, is it ancient alien stuff or is it much more boring? And I was on another podcast a couple of years ago and uh, the interviewer, she really sort of pushed me on this. She goes, well, what do you think? And mm -hmm. it was tough for me to answer that, but we can get to that uh, question yeah. as well. And if you want to start yeah, let's, backwards, so Atlantis is a later chapter, but whatever. Let's, I, I mean, if if flying machines are, are before Atlantis in, in your, your chronology, let's talk. Because I am all for it. <laughs> Not in the chronology, but just because for yeah, for for me, when I talk about Atlantis, when when it comes to what I believe, it's not the, the flying cars and it's not the, the Disney movie yeah. version. It's a, like a an early copper age society. Right, right. On all the right, shoreline. Wait. But yeah, so. so for the sake of the audience, let me uh clarify what our host has said is that um, in this book I wrote uh, called Lost Knowledge, I just devote separate chapters to cool, interesting puzzles sure. that, that intrigue me. So in one of the chapters, for example, I talk about these stories I found about flying vehicles in mm -hmm. different cultures. Um, in another chapter, I had found these ancient texts that talk about this idea of looking at a screen and seeing somebody at a distance, mm -hmm. which is kind of weird yeah so the book is just these very sober things so i wrote a chapter on atlantis we'll talk about that sure. and i wrote a chapter on these flying vehicles so let me yeah, start with the flying vehicles let's do it. chapter okay and these are separate things so when i was living in taiwan the first time which is 1992 93 thereabouts i was teaching at a university there and i was teaching design weirdly enough and I did a whole project on kites because, you know, the Chinese did kites. And one of my students said, oh, you know, do you know about these stories of ancient flying vehicles? And I was like, what's that? And, and she said, she goes, they were called in Chinese fei chi. I was like, okay, what does that mean, fei chi? So literally, fei means to fly. Mm -hmm. So when you go on an airplane nowadays, it's called a feiji flying vehicle, mm -hmm. right? It's just a monitor. And chi also is the character for a vehicle. So I was like, wait a minute. She says, yeah, look at these texts. And so they're these ancient texts that date from like 300 CE and okay. a little prior. Uh, there's all other, it's all listed in my book, but they explicitly say things like 
so-and-so built a Feita, a flying vehicle, and went from this town to this town. And I was like, this is weird. So, okay. of course, I went, and some writers had written about them. There's a very famous historian named Joseph Needham who wrote a whole history of uh, technology in ancient China, a very famous book. And then some texts hadn't been translated, so I translated them. And what began to form in my mind, it's very relevant to your program, I think, is that there's this whole separate category of stuff that is not uh, sort of tales of people with wings flying around. And we find that in all cultures, you know, sort of fantastical tales. They're what I called mechanical mythologies, where there are these stories that just say, so-and-so built this vehicle and flew from town A to B. And they're explicitly machines. You even find this in Chaucer. Chaucer has these stories of a, a brass horse mm -hmm. that you get on, or this is later, it's medieval, yeah. and you flip a switch and the horse flies. And I talked to one of my former professors about this. I said, you know, this is not, you know, the ancient mythologies. That's not talking about dragons. Like that's. Yeah, exactly. It's not dragons. It's, it's a separate category. And he said, yeah, go for it. So what I found was interesting was that there were Chinese sources that talk about these flying vehicles, the exact term, Korean stories. Um, and what was very weird was among the Ainu people, you mm -hmm. know, the indigenous people way up in northern Japan yeah. and Russia. And South, they had these stories. And then even the Hopi Native Americans had these stories. And so that also struck me. And this mm -hmm. is sort of Graham Hancock-ish. The, the Native that... American ones definitely interest me a lot because I I came across yeah. like yeah. when I when I was reading about the Croatan and the Secatan, these Carolina Algonquin peoples of the East Coast, like a lot of their religious beliefs lined up with Judaism in a weird way that I could almost <laughs> see like I could almost see where the Mormons were coming up with some oh, of this stuff. Yeah. Like but there were there were certain things about it. And then it wasn't, you know, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, they were a lost tribe of Jews. But you look at it and you're like, you know, one single creator God, two original people. They left a garden like you're like, this is this is a lot of motifs here. And, and this is sort of gets to one of your earlier points, which is like, where should an academic researcher fall? And I think mm -hmm. it's important to fall into this thing where it's like. No, I'm not going to go down the ancient aliens yeah. thing, but I'm also not going to be a total skeptic. Like, mm -hmm. here's the hard evidence. Here are these tales. Like, there's something weird here. What it is, I'm not going to conjecture about, but these tales are very explicit about subject X. Yeah. And I think, you know, what my book tries to say is we need to introduce a whole new academic field to look at this. Right. Because they're weird. Like those kind of stories are weird. The repetition of motifs across many different cultures are weird. So I'll tell you, for example, like the Ainu stories. Sure. And this is also a good view of how academia works when it works well. So I had read some reference that said, oh, the Ainu also have flying vehicle tales. So I wrote to a professor, a Japanese woman, who I think was out in Oklahoma, who had written her thesis on Ainu legends. And I said, is this true? And she goes, yes, read source one, two, and three. And she gave me the sources and it was great. So I read them and they're you know, transcribed from a Japanese anthropologist. And sure enough, there are these strange stories where there's an Ainu couple and the husband climbs on the roof of his home, gets into a vehicle, 
and goes and fights in aerial combat, which you also find in the, uh, you know, the South Asian, the Indian, like the, the, the Viamana tales. It's mm -hmm. very similar. And, you know, in my book, I don't go Graham Hancock and say, oh, this signifies this. I say, but look at this. And this is weird. And for the first time ever, I put that right next to the Chinese tales, mm -hmm. right next to the Hopi tales. And I say, yes, there's something weird going on here. Yes, these tales are very explicit. There's no mistaking the language. Right. You know, these, these I'm not doing any interpretation, really. I'm, I'm giving you, in every case, the primary source and the translation and footnoted citations. And that's why I think I was told, this is better than Graham Hancock, because mm -hmm. this isn't me talking. This is the ancients themselves talking. Right. You know, here, here's the text. And I love that. And in the Hopi account, there's one, for example, where uh, there are these gods, but they go on what are called flying shields. And it's the same thing that you get on the shield. It goes up. You fly above the weather. The shield drops down and lands. And so it's very mechanical. And that's what intrigued me. I'm a historian of technology. Not that it necessarily means this, that, or the other thing, but it's that these peoples these indigenous peoples, these Chinese, these Ainu thought in a way that was like very technological. Mm -hmm. That's weird. Yeah. And that is exciting in and of itself. Pure evidence, no conjecture. I so, love it. You know? So these, it sounds to me like these flying machines, the way they're described, that none of them are identical. They're, they're different. Yeah. And it's funny. So for example, in the Chinese ones, they're called fei chu. Mm -hmm. Chu just means vehicle. Like okay. chu is your car, right? Sure. And in the Chinese ones, you know, unfortunately, they never describe the motive power or anything. Mm -hmm. But they'll say that you know they go up, they travel, and they land. In the you know the South Asian uh, tales, which are probably the ones people know the most, it's all over the internet. You know, the weird Vimana tales. Yeah. They're described as like buildings that sort of fly around. Yeah, these um, giant like ziggurat structures. Yeah, you know, like ziggurat structures. In the Hopi ones, uh, they talk about it as a shield. And that's also interesting. It's like, what, what metaphor does the language have to resort to? Like the example I use in the book is when cars were first invented, we called them horseless carriages. Yeah. Because we didn't have the language. So each culture kind of constructs it linguistically differently like it's a field it's um it's a swan but with a switch or it's mm -hmm. a horse with this switch and so the 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 descriptions are all different but they're all explicitly mechanical mm -hmm. at, without any question so we're not talking like arabian flying carpet we're talking like da vinci flying machine Exactly. And so I, I point out that they're they're not like flying carpets or creatures with wings. In fact, here, here to give a little Chinese lesson, in, in Chinese myths, there's there's creatures called fei tian, so fei to fly, but tian is like an immortal, right? Like a, a supernatural being. So the Chinese clearly had in ancient times two linguistic categories. There's yeah. fei tian. Yeah, these creatures with mm -hmm. wings that fly around and do magic. Mm -hmm. And then there's the feature where it's a vehicle that you have to get in to fly. And those are, are very different beasts. Yeah. And it's, so it's very cool, you know, for me, it's exciting for me to find these stories where they're talking about technology. What it means, I don't know. And, and also just to interject, because this came up the other day, because 
my wife was saying, how come somebody like Graham Hancock has a TV show and you don't? I said, bigger question is, how come Graham doesn't contact me? Because I have all this stuff. I have like file drawers. Of, you know, I did the, the, the grunt work to find all this stuff. Have you reached and, out to him? And like, no, no, I don't want to go that route. I was like, I want my own show. But right. be, because for me, again, my, my serious point is, is that this stuff in and of itself is so exciting. Yeah. Like the, this ancient material. But go ahead. I, yeah, you had no, I'm just, yeah, I'm just sitting here. I'm just digesting it. Because, um, you know, for me, this is the flying machines. One is one I hadn't heard of before. I had, I had heard the, the you know, the Vedic texts that involve it. But yeah, yeah. that right. was really it. The the Hopi one is super interesting to me because yeah. I also have questions about the Nazca lines. Um, because that's one that I'm like, I did. Huh? <laughs> Where did that's this come from? Mystery. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I... I've tried to talk to some archaeologists about it, and that's kind of the the response I keep getting is we don't know, and we don't right. want to speculate. Um, which, for me, I, that's kind of why I see people as like Hancock and and myself to an extent, I guess, as as important is somebody's got to ask the questions that that the academics are a little too like I'm worried if I ask this question, I won't get published ever again. Right. So some we have to ask these questions so that other people have an excuse to research it. Well, let me let me interject because this relates to something that we were talking about before the show that I think is important for sure. listeners, if you don't mind. Go for cool. it. So, the Nazca lines, you know, which I've read about, of course, because it came up as I had to do my reading for my own work. So here's the problem. So, uh, academics, yes, by nature, we have to be skeptical. We have to be reserved, both for our careers and also because we like being evidence based. Oh, and even the stuff where I found evidence of stuff that's very, very odd. The problem is, is that it's very facile in an academic setting to say such and such thing was built, like the Nazca lines, as a monument to the gods. End of story. Yeah. And you find this a lot, like Stonehenge, it's a monument, you know, to the spirits or yep. for astronomical alignments. And and I, when I was in graduate school, one of the best lessons I ever had in graduate school was a professor was teaching class. He said, that's what's called the Whiggish view of history. And I was like, what the hell does that mean? I never heard that, that expression. Mean? And it's basically this idea that we as moderns are very smart mm -hmm. and we're driven by intellectual things. And if we look in the back, people back then were superstitious mm -hmm. and kind of dumb and everything they did had motivations of fear of angry gods and stuff. But the actual fact, like we're talking about, is, is we have no idea the operating environment of ancient peoples. Mm -hmm. The people that did the Nazca lines or that did Stonehenge, especially because they left no written records, we don't know what their motivations were. We don't know what drove them to do these monumental things they did. And, and for either Hancock to speculate or for mm -hmm. me to speculate is just wrong. And the analogy I used, you know, and I've lived in many other cultures. I lived in Latin America. I lived in East Asia, you know, uh, in Europe. People do things for weird reasons that you're never, ever going to guess. Like, here's a good example that came up recently. I met with a mathematician locally mm -hmm. who does history of math. And he asked me to give a talk. And I said, you know, I want to give a talk on the I Ching. And he said, oh, that's fortune telling. I said, no, it's not. I said, we look at that ancient text and we say, oh, they were superstitious and they wanted to predict the future. I said, what it actually is, it's a very sophisticated mathematical model of looking at probabilities when you're in a particular state. Mm -hmm. It's like network theory. And he goes, really? I said, yes. 
I said, we have such prejudice when we look at the past and we really don't know what people's motives were for doing this stuff. So like, that's the thing we, we like, what was the quote I wrote down here? Oh, the past is another country. Mm -hmm. So that's it's alien to us. Right. It's totally alien to us. And we need to accept that and then muck around and look for cool stuff therein. Yeah, yeah. that's fine. What, one of my favorite oxymorons is historical fact uh, <laughs> for that yeah, exact reason that so many things just keep changing over and over and over. And, you know, right. the stuff that the Victorians knew is stuff that we know they made up now. Right. <laughs> it, exactly. It was a constant. I, so I have a huge, great. there's a huge argument yeah. thread that I'm part of on TikTok right now that I've apparently been in for over a year now. Um, where it, it's, it's quite literally that I, somebody made a video about medieval torture devices and I commented quite simply, why are you lying? <laughs> like, why are you making things up? And a whole bunch of people yeah. attacked me in the comments and I'm sitting here and I, I had to just respond to them. I'm like, guys, stop telling me to Google things. I have a degree in medieval studies. Right, right. I, I'm confident in my opinion on this one. Like, right this was an entire segment of our coursework was, hey, by the way, everything you heard about the Spanish Inquisition is wrong. Here's what well, actually happened. Yeah. Exactly. It's like the idea that you know, the church, the church wasn't torturing anybody. The secular leaders who they were like, we'll split the money with you. Those were the people torturing other people. And they occasionally did it with things like the rack. But a lot of these medieval, tor medieval torture devices that the Victorians like came up with don't actually make any sense at all. Like they're, they're there, really there's a, unreasonable. There's a lot of constructed history. There's a lot of history that is very fragmentary. I mean, I could talk about this at length because also particularly like, you know, in my life where I've gone to places when you're on the ground and you see things like, you know, people like write all kinds of stuff about Brazil, for mm -hmm. example, because it's a cool place. But when you're actually there, like, you get a very different impression, very different information. I speak the language, mm -hmm. et cetera. And I, I think that that's very, very important. You know, like a lot of people don't know, and I'm not going to talk about politics, but like Taiwan, mm -hmm. you know, where my wife is from, like it's very different from mainland China, but mm -hmm. how is it different? And if God forbid you should rely on the news or even commentators on China, you would have no clue. It's like, yeah, as you point out, a lot of our knowledge of the past is constructed from Victorian stuff. And you yourself point out that um, uh, Graham Hancock draws from Donnelly, right? For his Atlantis stuff, you know? And Donnelly is a product of that Victorian kind of mm -hmm. constructed history. Yeah, it's yeah. it's crazy. Donnelly yeah. is one of the guys that, uh, you know, I, in the, the part of the video where I say that Graham chose his sources poorly, Donnelly is one of the people I mentioned because why why bring up somebody from 1882? I think is, is when yeah. he published his work on Atlantis. Yeah, it's the late 19th century. And it's, you know, the, the you know, much as I love the 19th century and think there was great stuff done during then, they had a very prejudicial, you know, methodology for history. And you just can't take that stuff. And, you know, even Freud, you know, Freud is a great example. He wrote, what was the book? Totem and Taboo. Mm -hmm. and it was brilliant. But it's somebody described when he, Freud starts talking about primitive cultures, totally armchair. Yep. You know, Freud never went to any of these places. He sat in the chair and he hypothesized about like native peoples and stuff like that. And you can't do that again. You got to do the work. And I just say that over and over again. Yeah. And again. So, yeah, that's the, that's wanted... the big problem is the this disconnect between 
I think there's we've created kind of an adversarial relationship between the people who are asking the questions and people who are looking for the evidence. Right. When in reality, those those probably should be two different pe- groups of people, and you can have people who cross over. But there's been created this this animosity between the the commentators who and 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 this is what I'm seeing is a, a large number of historians are because as as archaeology kind of moves away from being a a subset of the historical field into its and it's become its own science. Historians are at a point now where we're not really the ones doing all of the historical work. We're now using archaeological reports as primary sources. To so a certain, it's, it to a certain extent, kind of yeah. You're doing. yeah. Yeah, exactly. For yeah, me as a medieval historian, right. it's I have I have the documents and the pictures. Right. And then I have what the archaeologists have found, and that's what we what I can what I have to use for everything. Um, obviously, there are more there are certain historical yeah. subjects that are still more hands on, but a lot of it's document based and, and analysis based. And what I'm seeing is, you know, historians are always going to have a role as the people who compile and summarize and explain what all of these other fields are finding and connect it to the central narrative. But I think historians also need to lean into that role of, you know, hey, I was reading through this, all of this evidence and all of this documentation on such and such subject, and I noticed there's there's something missing, like there's a gap here. We don't know how right. this became this. Can you guys look into that? That, I think, needs to be the process, is we've got, we need to have the historians right. and the, the journalists and the sociologists, whoever's looking over stuff, go, hey – this is a weird topic. This is a weird subject. Can we maybe get some details on that? And then if, yeah. I, when it comes to funding, that's probably the most difficult part, but somebody needs to get like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos to care about archaeology. Well, that, <laughs> I mean, that would be great to get some serious funding for any number of things. Again, you know, when I did my work, it was really almost no funding to, to do that. You, know, you can do textual work without a lot of funding, but still, but I want to twist what you've just said sure. to make a segue into Atlantis. Sure, go for it. Because, uh, you know, historical uh, investigations of the Atlantis text, text mm-hmm. and Plato, is kind of what you're talking about, where uh, a thoughtful historian can go in and say, hey, there's some questions here. There's something we missed, to paraphrase what you just said. And I think that is important because Atlantis is one of these things that's fallen into two halves, the totally crazy speculative stuff that, you know, the Bimini Road is evidence of Atlantis, or what's the one in Japan, uh, the sunken ruins? I don't know about Japan. Japan. I know that Graham mentions Nan Madal. There's Nan Madal, there's Bimini Road, which she also mentions, and then there's the one in Japan, which she doesn't mention, but that's another thing. And so when I was writing my book on lost knowledge, I didn't even want to go to the Atlantis thing, but I had a, a tremendous... Uh, classics professor mm-hmm. in graduate school, this guy, Brad Inwood, um, who's a specialist in Greek, and he had taught a course on the Stoics. So I started writing on Atlantis, and I said, I emailed him immediately. I said, Brad, you know, before I wade into this, what do you think? Like, you're a real scholar, and you've mm-hmm. read Plato, you've read everything in original Greek. And he just, again, he said, go for it. He said, you know, there, there may be two writers who are serious writers about the topic of Atlantis. Uh, one of them is Christopher Gill, and I cite him in my book. You know, a guy who really, again, had done the serious work of looking at the text. But in terms of interpretation, mm-hmm. there's a wonderful program that you should listen to 
on BBC Four called In Our Time. Right. You got to listen to that program. It's great. And for people that are listening to this, you'd like that. They talk about everything from megaliths to history of Christianity, whatever. And they have these great guests. But I listened to their Atlantis program and they only had academics on. Mm -hmm. And the academics did the typical thing with Atlantis, which is Atlantis is just fiction. And it's not fiction. And now mm -hmm. I'm going to sound like I'm from this side of the spectrum. It's like the Greeks didn't have that kind of fiction like we have, where a person sits down and writes a novel that simply didn't exist in Plato's time. Right. You had plays, right, which were fictional, right, stories. But this idea that I am Plato, I'm going to write a fictional story from nothing and just put it there to mess with people 2000 yeah. some years from now. So what I did was I looked at the, the Plato story. I push out Hancock and really immediately, mm -hmm. but I do the same thing. I say, there's something weird about this yep. story. The and dating you, is very odd. It's so precise. The dating is very odd. The, the placing of it in this remote past. And again, some academics will tell you, they'll say, Oh, well, what Plato is doing is by placing it 9,000 years ago, he's just saying, like, in a galaxy long, long ago, you know, far, far away down there. And, like, no, this is a weird contextualization. And plus, in, this, in the Plato's text, he has this beautiful opening part, which is that these Greeks have traveled to Egypt, and they're hearing this story from, from one of the, the Egyptian priests. And the Egyptian priest turns to the Greek visitors and he says, you know, you Greeks are like children. Your history is about this deep. Our history is about this deep. So in the text is a clear comment mm -hmm. on lost knowledge, historiography, transmission. Like mm -hmm. these are serious themes. This is not just fiction. It's very explicit discussion of cultural memory, et cetera. And I think that gets glossed over mm -hmm. in the academic literature. And then, as I say, even the, the crazy Atlanteans don't look at what the text actually says. And then the other thing in the text is it's filled with numbers, measurements. Right. You know, the, the city-state was this many states wide and this dimension. And so I asked my professor, I said, why is that? And he said, no one knows. He says, and the ancient reader would have totally understood, mm -hmm. right? So if like you and I are talking, I go, oh yeah, that was on, uh, I think it was the third episode of Seinfeld, wink, wink, like mm -hmm. we know. So these ancient texts have a context that we've totally lost. Yeah, I think a and, lot of people neglect the fact that we've lost uh, probably the vast majority of every written work that was ever created pre-1800. Yeah, completely, <laughs> right? And in, in a meta sense, we don't have text. And then even the text we have, because Plato's fairly complete. We don't know, you know, like, what was he referring to? Why are there these numbers? Would an ancient reader have understood this? Why don't we understand this? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think the Atlantis text itself in Plato is filled with material that we have no idea about. And plus, the other thing that I think Hancock totally misses the boat on is that Plato is obviously himself interested in the ancient past, yep. which is weird for us to think about that ancient people were interested in the ancient past mm -hmm. before them. And that's weird. Like, you know, we t I, I listened to your Hancock broadcast mm -hmm. and uh, one of the things Hancock's obsessed with is this idea like, oh, there was a lost civilization 
you know, that then declined and the few survivors helped these hunter gatherers grow right. again to it. Okay. Who the hell cares about that? What's really interesting is that ancient people thought that there was an advanced civilization. Mm -hmm. That to me is a much more interesting question. Like no ancient Greek or Chinese thinker ever thought, I used to draw this on the board mm -hmm. in class, ever thought that like primitive people, da da da, and here we are, these very clever Greeks or Chinese right. or whatever. They all thought culture had gone like this. Yeah, they thought it rose and fell. We see this all it over, like the, the Maya, the Aztecs, the Greeks. I mean, every, every culture, right? Who, who doesn't have a soul? Uh, are there any cultures that don't have a story of? culture of civilization resetting that you know right, of. exactly exactly <laughs> they all do you know and to me that's interesting like why in the case of plato why was he so intrigued by mm -hmm. this idea of a civilization that arose and collapsed because what evidence did they have because you would think you know if you're in ancient greece you're in a territory where basically if you go north a few hundred miles you're in barbarian territory right you know you're up in, in near the caspian sea whatever you know there's no civilization like the greeks anywhere around them you would think that they were the denouement of everything but mm -hmm. they themselves didn't believe that and that to me is what the atlantis story is, is all about it's kind of a proclamation themselves of having this conversation mm -hmm. like there was something very weird before us yep. and we've lost this and somehow. there's a lot there's a lot of situations somebody brought it up in chat there's a uh a story in uh, some Welsh mythology about mm -hmm. a, a land to the west of Wales that was also Welsh, but there's, as far as anybody knows, to the west of Wales, there's nothing. There's just Ireland and open water. Um, now, of course, if this is a reference passed down orally for thousands of years, 7,000 years ago, I think, the, the western coasts of Wales were dozens of miles further west. Yeah. So it could be that, you know, that it's not even, everybody thinks, you know, oh, well, flood, that's 10,000, 11,000, 12,000 years ago. There's no way that survives cultural memory. We forget that the ocean levels have been rising consistently. And I think part of it is that we keep talking about climate change and sea level rise, and everybody's like, oh, well, the ocean levels have been stable vaguely right. over the last 500 years. <laughs> like, if you went back 500 years, the coastline would look different. Um, if you went back 1,000 years, it's going to look even more different. If you go back 20,000 years, you're not going to recognize the planet. Um, but if you look at, you know, those stories from people who, you know, we're talking like 7,000 BC, right. 6,000 BC, that right. those have a chance of surviving because we're not talking about some massive cataclysm that wiped out the entire planet. We're talking right. about the water just kind of slowly creeping up and people being like, yeah, my grandparents lived or my, you know, my, my grandparents, grandparents lived 10 miles west of here, but now that's a marsh. Like, yeah. that's what you're going to see in the text is, and there used to be people who lived here, but the land became marshy and uninhabitable. Like, well, I think us, we don't understand, like, how, and that's a big part of what I write about, how transmission of knowledge can happen in those ways, and that those things can last a very, 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 very long time. You know, those accounts and stories can last generation after generation mm -hmm. after generation, and could well preserve real knowledge. and. and you know, it's funny, one of the things that Hancock argues poorly is that myth, ancient myths preserve truth. Right. Okay. To me, the more interesting uh, question is, 
did the ancients themselves believe this? And they did. So there's a passage, I think it's in Pliny the Elder, I forget, mm -hmm. or it's in Plutarch. I have it in my book, where he himself is an ancient writer, and he says, you know, there's this story of, of uh, this chariot being drawn too close to the sun and it burning up. He goes, those are myths, but we all know that these right. are actually ways of preserving true knowledge of things that happened in the heavens. And I'm like, there it is. Yep. They understood this modality of transmission, and they were very well in touch with what was just fabrication mm -hmm. and then what was what I call encoded or mythologized yep. knowledge. And then our job as moderns is to, again, take that middle road and see what myths really do contain kernels of, you know, accounts of Western land that maybe underwent gradual inundation, et cetera. And I think the what's called, you know, parsing of myths is, is really still in its infancy. The, this idea of understanding that there were different ways of knowledge transmission that stuff was preserved, how to weed that out from the framing material, et cetera. It's, it's very, very hard. Um, I was just gonna tell you a quick example, which has now escaped me, but you know, that's, it's important. I, oh, I remember, I, sure. I used to teach a class that when you read fairy tales, for example, or when your, your parents may have told you tales as a kid, things like Little Red Riding Hood, right? Mm -hmm. Little Red Riding Hood. Those tales are hundreds, if not thousands of years old, right? What happens is when those tales are passed down, everything is trimmed away that doesn't convey some symbolic message. Mm -hmm. So Little Red Riding Hood is great. Now, the way I've read it and interpreted it and read studies of it, it's about a young girl coming of age. She's wearing red. She's reaching puberty. She has to be careful of the wolf who mm -hmm. symbolizes you know, men. In fact, in Chinese, a, a kind of predatory male is still called a silang, a wolf. Interesting. Um, yeah. So if you look at these kind of myths, you can usually see that almost every component has some symbolic value. So, you know, mm -hmm. there, there's something in there that has some meaning. Like, so if a white dog suddenly jumps on your lap, <laughs> it's a symbol. It is some meaning. He's, he's a symbol you're... for he needs attention. Um, yeah, and this cool. is the only way to get him to not make noise. Uh. Yeah. <laughs> well, go for it. If you want to field some questions sure. or something, you're, you're the boss. Yeah, I just that's... don't want to speak for people. No, I've, I've, been letting you, I've been letting you talk because it's good stuff. <laughs> so I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm, I'm learning. So this is great for me. But yeah, I think uh, it's, it is 8.08. We will switch over to that, that Q&A section. We'll do about half an hour of that. Um, and then I will let you go. But, you know, um, really quickly, you know, some people were asking about your, your book and where they might be able to get it. Do you want to quickly tell us where uh, people can find you? I put a link to uh, the Brill website, but that was all I had. Yeah, so uh, the Brill website's the best place to buy it. It's an expensive book because it's an academic book. If you, if any of your readers are living near a university, every university library has it. Okay. I think it's all over the world at this point. Um, yeah, it's always like 179 uh, hardcover on Amazon. Yeah, because these these kind of books, I should tell people, when you write an academic book, usually they're designed to be sold to libraries and then students go read them. Yeah. If you want to buy the book, thank you. I make virtually zero money from this. I should make it very clear. There's, there's no royalties in, uh, yeah. in academic writing. But um, yeah, people should look in libraries for it. And, and I should also point out that it's not written 
as an academic book. It's written, you know, with footnotes and everything, but there's a lot of fun, really interesting stuff. And I get down and yeah. dirty, you know. About it it does not read like a textbook at all. Uh, God, I hope not. No, it does not. <laughs> it, it very much reads like a paper written by somebody who knows what they're talking about and is is trying to communicate the information. It's It does not feel like I'm being forced to memorize facts for an exam. Um, yeah. There is so, no exam after this show, by the way. Yeah, no, no, no exam, thankfully. <laughs> Um, but let's see. Let's go to those uh, some viewer activity. So this is usually my co-host's job is to monitor the chat and uh, categorize super chat. So I'm just going to go through them myself. Um, let's see. I'll, I'll take. I'll hit uh, questions I see first, though. So for those who are new to the show or who have a question haven't had a chance to ask it, the way that we do it is I will answer super chats first because you guys paid to ask those questions, and therefore it's only fair that I answer them. Um, if there are too many, I will get to questions first and then comments. I uh, that's kind of how it works. But if you have questions, send them in now. And, you know, whether it's for me or for Benjamin, up to you. It's your choice. Um, and, yeah, so that's how it works. Let me look through what's already in here. Um, in terms of questions, but there really aren't any questions yet. Cool. Um, I'll just read these in order then. So, Plaz, $5. Thank you, sir. Said, just dropping in a dono for you boys. I'll have to catch the episode later. Having dinner with my father-in-law to be. Much luck to the lodge. Well, Plaz, when you do come back and watch it, congratulations on your upcoming marriage. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, Norberto Rodriguez Jr. sent two for five each. He said, it may be there isn't anything written in the ancient sites that has not already been discovered and they don't want to dump money into it. I assume that was in reference to uh, when I said that, you know, we, we need to fund some of these digs. Uh, I, in some cases, yes. In other cases, I, like, for example, um, Ganung Padang is the one that Graham Hancock mentions first in the show. There's some weirdness that we absolutely don't know anything about. So it's one of two things. Either it's something we haven't discovered or it's just a natural formation. But we're not going to know until somebody excavates it. Wait, let me in there chime sure. in on this if i may so i, I think because it's funny I, so my daughter i should comment i have a daughter who ironically is interested in going into archaeology uh as an undergrad so mm -hmm. she's just finishing high school so um one of the things i i had to explain to her because we talk about making a living a lot mm -hmm. in our household i said <laughs> you have to understand like how stuff gets researched and she also asked the question that i think a lot of the audience is kind of interested in like this is so cool. Why isn't there money being poured into this? And it's because what happens like in archaeology, for example, you'll you'll be an archaeology student. You'll work under your professor in an existing site, which is great because you're learning and that site probably has a lot of work to do. And it takes a lot of effort to just go do something totally new. Like, where are you going to get the money from? You know, the universities themselves have limited number of things they're going to, to fund. Uh, it tends to be, like all academic endeavors, fairly conservative. Um, you, you just can't pull money out. And getting wealthy people interested in things. In fact, here, I'll, I'll tell you a story very directly about this. So uh, I wrote another book called Deciphering sure. Reality. Okay. And this is the book we can talk about on another show if you want me back. And it's about Probably the will. matrix and all right, so cool. It's about the matrix and virtual reality and what's called digital physics. And you know, the question of at the bottom of reality, maybe this is just pure information and consciousness, right? You've heard all this before. Mm -hmm. So this book was published by Brill, big academic publisher in the Netherlands, a very sober book. 
with one of the Dutch editors. It's so funny. He emails me, he goes, you know, Elon Musk is totally into this stuff. Mm -hmm. I said, yeah, I saw that Elon Musk was like talking to his board of directors and like went off on one of his things where it's like, oh, this is just a simulation. <laughs> so my editor says to me, he says, can we send him a copy? I'm like, yeah, go for Let's it. Do it. <laughs> but have I heard from Elon Musk? No, not nope. yet. So it's like, you know, these things, they just, they they don't happen. And there are a million topics, not just archaeological mm -hmm. sites, there are a million topics that haven't been investigated. I mean, one of the ones that you may have talked about on your show is the Voynich manuscript. Do you know what that is? I've heard of it. I haven't discussed it yet. Medieval manuscript that's written in this language that could be gibberish or could be code. You know, and it's been studied somewhat academically by people at Yale, mm -hmm. a ton of internet stuff. But it's, again, here's the question. How come somebody doesn't just drop a million dollars and say, figure this out, put my name on it, et cetera. You know, to your listeners, the world doesn't work this way. I've worked with wealthy donors and when I was at the university, their attention is being diverted in a thousand different ways. They tend to be very skeptical about what they're going to throw their money at. My first book actually was funded by a wealthy collector of maps, mm -hmm. and he scrutinized everything that I did, rightly so, and I was very lucky to have this great relationship with him, but it just doesn't work that way. It just there are a million interesting questions out there in the world that are not attracting funding. Mm -hmm. It's just, you know, in my position as an academic, I have to write a grant application. Right. And um, you write it and you say, I'm interested in subject X. Will you fund this? I just had one that was accepted two years ago, and I just had one that was rejected. And they're both interesting projects in my view, but, you know, who knows? Right. Who knows why? Yeah. So the the world is not a rational uh, beast, you know, and so that's why it is. Yeah. And hopefully my daughter will understand. Oh, so. It's so frustrating because we, we tried to uh, pitch a show that was kind of based on the idea of exploring these ancient mysteries. And uh, we, we've pitched it twice now and you just can't get can't get anyone to bite. And of course, I'm sitting here. I'm like, we had a cast of pretty popular like. TikTok and YouTube content yeah. creators who already carry an audience. You know, they were, we, we were ready to go. We had six episodes that we we could have scheduled and gotten moving. We had a list of experts, like, and just, it, even just a TV show, they didn't want to put it behind. Even when I can sit here and I can show them the, the revenue receipts and the viewership and everything from just this show. Right. Just this show. And then we had people who have their own shows that are, you know, top 20 podcasts on Spotify or trending on YouTube and stuff. And back then we weren't all quite at this point yet. We were all, we had smaller audiences, but looking at it now, I'm like, if I were to pitch that now, I still feel like nobody would bite. Um, just yeah, because and, and TV pitching is all another thing. Uh, an old, old friend of mine actually works as a writer in Hollywood. Mm -hmm. And I've talked to him about this and like what gets picked up. I mean, I was contacted by national geographic uh, by uh, Canal Plus, which is the French, you know, big mm -hmm. French TV concern about doing a show about uh, another book I wrote about Marco Polo. But even then, it sort of grinds on some footage you shot, it doesn't happen. You know, yeah. these projects take an enormous effort to get off the ground. Before I forget, since you brought sure. up TV, we we're talking about this, this is something I think all listeners should know. I'm going to put it in the chat. Okay. So, 
one of the things Graham Hancock talks about a lot is this idea that there was an advanced civilization that disappears in the cataclysm. All right. And so the question is like, where's the evidence, right, of this? And I always tell people, like, I think I told my daughter this, I said, I'm excited for the day that we're digging deep in the ground and we find the remains of an actual flying vehicle. I go, then I'll be rich and famous because I'll have done the textual side and here's the archeological side, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I got interested in this idea. If you take a culture as advanced as ours with skyscrapers, airplanes, et cetera, what would happen actually if there were a cataclysm and mm -hmm. it got covered up? So a friend of mine, uh, this guy, Steve Milton, he used to make documentary films for the Discovery Channel and stuff. And he did this film called Aftermath, uh, colon, Population Zero, mm -hmm. 2008. Everybody should I watch I said that it. in the chat, by the way. He put that in the chat. All yeah. right, good. And what it is, it's it, he just did this study interviewing different scientists where he said, well, what would happen if humans just disappeared right now, but all these buildings and stuff were here. How long would it take the vegetation to overgrow the highways for the nuclear plants to melt down, but for the radiation to disappear, mm -hmm. et cetera? It's a surprisingly short time that virtually all remains of human civilization and technology would disappear, right? So it's interesting. Talking like 20,000 years? Less, I think wow. less. You got to watch the documentary. It's an hour and a half or so. Yeah, I, I was basing that off of what I remember from a Chernobyl documentary from 15 years oh, ago. Yeah. So <laughs> that's actually a great example. Yeah, Chernobyl is another great example of that sort of a closed system. That, but what's interesting is that you could conceive. You know, what did I write down here? That Homo sapiens have been around. You know, for about. 90,000 years, no modern humans that looked like a, mm -hmm. it's conceivable you could have a civilization that arose and built a whole, you know, technologically sophisticated apparatus and then disappear. It's conceivable. Mm -hmm. But if it existed, we should be like, sinking some boreholes a yeah. mile down looking for this and that's the problem is we got to figure out the precise location of it before we even do that so the, the whole thing right. with atlantis is but that's what drives me nuts is when we go and we do find a site where we're like ah this is kind of weird like good in Kadang, where they found this weird void like 14 meters down using seismic demography right. and they also they drilled down they found cultural layers and what i found was that the archaeologists who were you know dismissing this work were other Indonesian archaeologists who needed funding for their own sites. You had said that on your show. I, I had watched that. And, yeah. And, and I want to follow up on that point because sure, I think that's important again for the audience is that I don't want it to seem then that like every academic is out to sabotage the other. No. But you can understand with limited funding, there's going to be debate and also and this has been written about very seriously by other academics, research can be very politicized. Yeah. And so what gets funding, what gets supported, et cetera, what uh, supports a certain theory. In fact, I was going to mention a culture, but I'm not going to, because I don't want to get in trouble. It's in my book. I talk about this, like sometimes there'll be nationalist movements, let's mm -hmm. say that promote a certain archeological line of investigation. Yep. And so that's very problematic. It's not this neutral ground where we find something cool and we start digging. Um, and in terms of this ancient, you know, lost civilization, yeah, who knows where mm -hmm. it could be if it existed at all. Yeah, right. And we find these, yeah, go ahead, I'm sorry. I was going to say, just to uh, address something I just saw pop up in chat. Somebody said in a thousand yeah. years, all that we left of America would probably be Mount Rushmore. 
Uh, Mount Rushmore degrades at a rate of about one-tenth of an inch every thousand years. I found that out researching for yeah. this this week's video. That's how, how slow granite erodes um, is a tenth of an inch every thousand years, which is just... What? Uh, Mount Rushmore is going to be there till the end of human civilization. (laughs) When I I used to teach this, I would teach about like the survival of a civilization, like its relics. And I would always call this the planet of the apes syndrome. And my students were like, what does that mean? And I would have to show them the original planet of the apes, the final scene. I don't know if you know this, where Charlton Heston's walking along Mm -hmm. the beach with his girlfriend. I forget her name, you know, who's mute because humans are mute. And the camera stoots down looking at him on the beach and you just see these spikes and then it pans back and it's the Statue of Liberty. Right. And then Charlton Heston's like, damn, damn, those stupid humans. This yeah. is what we did there. And it's like, yeah, you wonder what will survive. So that was the conceit of the movie. It's like, yeah. that's the only thing that's first. But you wonder, it's like, insane. maybe it's Mount Rushmore or something like that. Like, we yeah, exactly. Know. And if what if we have a collapse between now and then in 20,000 years, will people be looking at Mount Rushmore and going, these are the faces of their gods? Like, right. you it, know, it, exactly. And, and that's the problem. Well, you know, in of all movies, it was Mad Max. I think I was talking to my daughter about, you know, the Road Warrior movies. Right. Mm-hmm. So in like the second one, it's set in the farther future and there's this tribe of kids and they're wearing cd-roms as necklaces because they've totally lost the context of what you have no idea what that was supposed to be right and i told my daughter i said that's actually very cool as sort of a teaching moment because it's like these things are decontextualized so we don't know that's why i say like you know the pyramids oh they were for such and such function or the megaliths it's like we don't know and yeah mount rushmore could be interpreted as anything any number of things Right. It's decontextualized. The Atlantis story, now I argue, it's there in Plato. It's it's long, you know, read the whole thing. And it has context there because Plato's using it for political arguments, but basically it's decontextualized. We have no idea what an ancient Greek again would have thought. And I said this before. And and it's just like the flying vehicle stories, like Mm-hmm. What the hell are these about? It's like we don't have the context. We don't have the context. We don't have the context. And you, you know, I see you're so interested in archaeology. It's the same thing. It's like things are decontextualized archaeologically. I mean, Stonehenge, which is the one thing I've read most about archaeologically, and I've been there, which is it's an amazing place to be. That's one of the weirdest because it's this megalithic structure and there's nothing else of stone around it. Yeah. So then it's really weird because it's basically, you know, these ancient Britons who don't even have a written culture and bam, there's this thing. Mm-hmm. There's yeah. nothing to compare it to at all. And that makes it, you know, archaeology and serious history very hard, you know, yeah. very I mean, hard. What have we dated Stonehenge to now? Like 3000 BC, I want to say. Uh, or was I was it 3000 years old. I can't remember which it is. It's well, obviously, it's pre Roman. So when the Romans come, it's already there. And I think by the time the Romans come, it's not even in use anymore. So there's not even Roman accounts that would help us what it was used for. The the earliest version of it was uh, 3000 BC or between between 3000 and uh, 2500. So yeah. old, old, and it was it was made out of wood at first. They believe now, I think. Yeah, um, wood, wood set up, yeah. and then so, 
I do need I need you to get on with the the remainder of the questions though. Yeah, Rodriguez said some tribes in the deserts of the states mentioned the Thunderbird and natives mistook jets as Thunderbirds when they were testing jets back in the fifties. The Thunderbird's yeah. an interesting one, for yeah, sure. Yeah, the Thunderbird or what's the Indonesian one, the Garuda? Yeah, which is the same idea, a giant bird, and that's weird too. Again, you have a, a Native American thing mm -hmm. that matches with something thousands of miles away, yeah. and yeah, the question is, are these mythologized constructs of some memory of a thing yeah. and i mean other things too when you think about like a fire breathing dragon like uh, hmm, that that kind of sounds like a jet to me <laughs> well and again because if you have to view it as say like why is it this weird conflation of things because nothing else breathes fire so go ahead uh, please other sure questions. Yeah. uh party legate 1776 said full video on the spanish inquisition i can i can do that 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 would go over on history hunt <laughs> but that would go on one of our other channels but yeah i can do that the, the spanish inquisition and of course then i can talk about that woman on tiktok who says that the spanish inquisition made up the roman empire which is just a, that's, that's a oh it's if it, are you gonna you're gonna be uh you gonna be there in a couple of Wednesdays? Who me? Yeah, are you gonna be at, uh, I'm around. at the lodge? I'm not going anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. if if you're gonna be at the lodge, I, I can go. I can tell you all all about Mom Millennial. Uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be there second week in second Wednesday in June. Perfect. That's yeah. that's uh actually my birthday, um my okay, Masonic cool. birthday, not my birthday oh, okay. birthday. Um, <laughs> but yeah. So uh, Tim J. Tim J. Tim J. Ninety four for twenty. Thank you. Wow. I uh, said, "Hey, Mr. Mattis, would you be interested in having Roanoke Tales on one of your podcasts?" Right. He's covered a few of the same topics and has expressed interest in his comment section for collabing with you or Wendigoon. Absolutely. Uh, I can I can reach out to him this week. Um, you know, you guys should probably let him know that I've done it, but uh, I I will I will do that this week. Uh, NC Squatch said, "Y'all would be great on the Unsubscribe podcast." Got to take a look at that one. I don't think I've ever heard of that one. Um, okay. Actually, wait, it sounds familiar. What the unsubscribe pot is this? I'm the old man here, so I know less than anybody. Yeah, I'm trying to like who who runs the unsubscribe podcast is my question now. Like, cause because now I'm now I'm curious and I'm gonna look at it. <laughs> I also have Voynich manuscript pulled up because I'm gonna look into that this week. Uh definitely you want Addy to do and that. Eli double tap. I have not heard of these people but i would be willing to i would be willing to check it out um is this did they have wendigoon on is this what i'm seeing or are they talking about wendigoon i can't tell either way um i will i will take a look at it richard henderson for 1999 asked my biggest annoyance in public knowledge of ancient civilizations is that they infantilize them and make them sound stupid and lucky they survived as long as they did and i wanted to thank you guys for challenging that idea yes i see it with native americans all the time the the extent to which people think that native americans were these poor helpless you know agrarians who didn't know how to do war or anything is like the most insulting thing i've ever seen they were incredibly complex societies that just took a different direction from europe in the near east and africa well, and, like, and the fact that i i was much harsher i would take my students and say all right you have no cell phone service i'm going to throw you out yeah. somewhere in the jungle survive for thousands of years like these other groups mm -hmm. did and again these guys that's why the whole argument's like these people had knowledge that we can't even begin to frame you know they they understood botany and mm. plants and what to eat when they were sick and how to look at the stars and how to predict the seasons it was organized in a way totally different from the way we organized mm. knowledge and it wasn't techie the way we had it 
but they were no dumber than us. And, and in some ways they were smarter. They could survive yep. with less than we had. And they did not have the benefit of the Silk Road or the Mediterranean to facilitate exchange of ideas and goods and right. wares and such. Like they yeah. incredibly talented people just did not have the jumpstart into the metal age, the metal ages that we had over here. Right. And yet they may do. Exactly. Yeah. And incredibly yeah. well in, in right. some situations. Like some of the Native American stuff I've come across is fascinating. Uh, Nate's memes for two said, look at the advances in science over the last 100 years. Absolutely a good point. You know, we had people painting radium onto watches 100 years ago and then licking the brushes. Like, yeah. you know, we, we didn't know anything. This one's for you. Uh, Richard Henderson asked for five to Benjamin. What is your favorite ancient civilization to study and talk about? Oh, God, that's a tough one. I, I guess ancient Chinese civilization. That's what I've been most immersed in uh, recently. And that's the one also that, interestingly, nowadays we really have to disentangle from the politics because, mm -hmm. you know, the Chinese themselves, the government and mainland is really promoting, like, Chinese invented everything. Yeah, they've so got whole, their, their own cradle of civilization theory, right? Right, exactly. Which is... So I like picking that apart. <laughs> But I spent a lot of time uh, working on Chinese text, so I've become really interested in that. But I'm interested in everything, yeah. you know, uh, absolutely. I was a classicist doing, you know, ancient Rome, which I'm also obsessed with. So yeah. it's all good. What do you think about the uh, the suggestion based on, there's a couple of documents, I think, specifically Chinese ones that mention Great Qin to the West that would have been well, from like the first century AD or something? Well, there, there's been good studies of when the Greeks and Romans knew of China mm -hmm. and when those contacts were made. Certainly by the second century CE, the Romans had knowledge of China because there was already trade via India. Mm -hmm. I think it's Pondicherry where they found okay. uh, Roman remains. So th there was contact between those two cultures. It didn't develop like you think they would have mm -hmm. been besties right no <laughs> it, it, it doesn't seem to have happened but they knew of each other and the ptolemy the famous map maker he mm -hmm. certainly knew of china because that's in his map yeah it's yeah. I, I mean and it's also fascinating to look back a few centuries before that and to see that alexander was so close to discovering china like he, he was almost there he was in india yeah right and then, then he, he dies if he had young, made it yeah. a few hundred miles to the east Right. Like, and I don't, I don't think India wasn't going to stop him. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> they they did not. That stops him. Yeah. He yeah. dies too young, man. He, he, the, and, and the mystery surrounding his death and whether it was actually malaria or if somebody killed him. Like, it's, ah, uh, I love, I, I would love to see a mystery movie about how Alexander the Great actually died. Like, a, yeah. a fiction, obviously. I just think it's a good topic. Because yeah. you got, like, you could make, like, if Tarantino was more interested in history that went back more than 100 <laughs> years. Like, I could see a hilarious Diadoki movie made yeah. by Tarantino. Uh, I'll talk to my friend in Hollywood who's, <laughs> who's buddies with Tarantino. I'll say, uh, you know, let me get Tarantino to make this movie. If, if, he <laughs> needs, if he needs a little quick report, I can put it together. <laughs> That'd be nice. But yeah. Uh, let's see what else we got. Um, Nate's memes said, uh, ignorant to believe all past societies were primitive. Absolutely. Um, that, is, that has been one of the greatest mistakes of academia in the last 200 years uh matthew holloway for 10 asked i am interested in what you mentioned earlier about ancient chinese probability matrices is uh, it possible that great advancements in math happened much sooner and were not recorded such as calculus 
Um, I don't think calculus per se, but let me, I will try to reiterate on that point since the question was asked, and this is not original to me, by the way, other people have written about this, but I'm trying to push this forward. So you have to understand that ancient people were interested in decision theory, right? So the most famous one that everybody knows is the art of war, right? Census art of war, that book, right? Everybody's read that every business person has read the art of war. What that book is about is like, you're a general, mm -hmm. what decision do you make? When do you attack? When do you retreat, et cetera, right? So all societies, but particularly societies that live in a high risk mm -hmm. environments want to make sound decisions. How do you make sound decisions? Well, you understand here you are at this node and you have to understand what your resources are, what the incoming influences are, what your legacy from the past is. If you've ever had a tarot card reading, mm -hmm. it's the same thing. They put down the first card is you, and then there are cards that are behind that are influencing you from the past. The cards are things coming in, in the, in, you know, towards you from mm -hmm. the future, cards on the side that characterize you. And it, it's a matrix, right? Mm -hmm. It's, it's a with you at the node. So the I Ching is essentially the same thing. When you sit down and cast the I Ching, you have to phrase a certain kind of question. So for example, our host would cast a question. I got this television offer from National Geographic. Not should I go for it or not, what will happen, but what are factors that I should consider as I consult with my friends about whether to pursue this or not? And then you cast the I Ching. And the I Ching is essentially this mathematical model that tells you, you should consider this, favorable influences, negative influences, your own ability, you know, are you done your master's degree yet or not and stuff like that. And so it, it's mathematically looking sort of at your statistical uh, situation in this node. And again, you know, modern people look at this stuff and go, oh, it's fortune telling. Like, no, it's not. And the questions you ask are not fortune telling. It's really questions about decision making. And that's the kind of thing where, again, we have this very prejudicial view of the past. And I should point out to listeners that I'm not PC even remotely, but even I think we have this very weird uh, view that like past people had to think in this way that we're defining and it's yeah. wrong. There's a lot of good mathematical research to be done on this about what these models really were. Um, and they weren't fortune telling, mm -hmm. not at all. Fascinating. Yeah. Like th this is fun for me because I, I didn't, I know so little about China. Uh, <laughs> like One thing you do not study with a medieval studies degree is anything outside of Europe and North Africa uh, and the Near East. Yeah, you know, for me, it was circumstantial. I had an undergrad degree in classics. I did mm -hmm. ancient Rome. I did the semester abroad in Italy. I finished my PhD. Where was the job? It was in Taiwan. I literally pack up August of 93. All of a sudden, you got to learn about Chinese culture. And oh, I think I'm that's sure. good. And then yeah, you just force yourself to know this, to know this, to know this. That's that's the way it works, man. Absolutely. All right. Uh Party Like 1776 asked, uh, got no questions, just take my money, but can we get an Archie Awu? I'll have I'll make him howl at the end of the show. <laughs> Archie, Archie is a very tiny wolf, apparently. Uh, he loves to howl. Uh, Nate's meme said, we are living in a simulation controlled by elites. One of my favorite things about simulation theory is that it's atheists reinventing monotheistic religion again. <laughs> is that what the commentator said? Yeah, he, he, said uh, he said, we are living in a simulation controlled by elites. And every time I, I talk to somebody about simulation theory, I'm like, hmm, this all sounds really familiar. Just somebody 
designed all this and let it run? Hmm, fascinating. Well, <laughs> in the Matrix, it's the figure of the architect, mm -hmm. which would sound familiar from Freemasonry, where yep. it's the grand architect. Mm -hmm. And it is a kind of uh, monotheistic model. Although, yeah. and again, it's not quite the for same. For another program, not quite the same, and there are many variations that we can. Yeah. It's just it's just a funny thing for me that I'm like, all right, we're we're all coming around to the same end end agreement here. I see. Uh, Agamemnon's Jim Bag for twenty five said we can't fund legitimate studies because we have to fund Hamster Fight Club. There are videos. Look it up. I don't want to think about Hamster that. Fight Club. I'm I'm gonna look it up after the show. I'm I don't sure think I'm gonna enjoy it. Some ethical There's got to be somewhere. something wrong. Uh, let's see. Nate's memes for two said, "Do a vid about Winnemucca Indians on Jekyll Island." I can absolutely look into that. Let me. Uh, okay. Winnemucca uh, Native Americans. There we go. We'll have that popped up there. We've also got Ryan Whitcop for five twenty three said, "Enjoy four ninety seven in Wendy Coin." Just finished my video I was working on last week. And gearing up for a new one really shows how much work you guys put in. Well, thank you, and congratulations on getting your video done. Yeah, it's uh, probably a total of about 100 to 120 hours of work go into each episode between research, filming, editing, and, and you know, all the posting stuff. Uh, we've gotten it down a considerable amount since we started, just because we're getting used to it. But it, it takes a while to get it all done. <laughs> we do it every week. Uh, I, I basically, I do all uh, what... I, I thank my, my education for this because I basically do a research paper's worth of uh, studying every week. That's how we keep pumping out hour-long documentary videos. <laughs> it's just me sitting at a computer for hours and hours and hours. Uh, Norbert Rodriguez said, For five, if Lost Tech was found, the military will be funding archaeology if it proved viable for combat. Probably. I'm always terrified about finding like some sort of ancient, you know, like fungus biological warfare laboratory and suddenly everybody's dead <laughs> the whole the whole premise of that it was a movie and then tv show of, of stargate mm -hmm. is that right yeah Where they found the, they, the stargates right and then the military takes over the the research i, I mean and that's obviously fantastical but um, I, I wish it's interesting i wish they would make a new i, I wish they would uh, like we're seeing way too many reboots right now but a reboot of Star Trek SG-1 would be phenomenal. Stargate SG-1. Yeah, Stargate SG-1. Yeah. SG Sorry, my bad. Um, but, like, I, because I, I remember watching the movie a couple of years ago for the first time. I just had nothing to do. And I was like, ah, oh, I've heard of, heard of this show. And I watched the movie and I was like, this is fantastic. And I went to watch the first episode of the TV show. It's like was the budget for this somebody's lunch money like yeah it was, first of all low budget yeah you recast it's... way too many people from big yeah. name actors down to tv actors which again it was the 90s but like and it's money i i yeah, wish it's... like could you imagine netflix or amazon prime taking that on with the funding they have oh yeah you could do something oh. beautiful well it's funny about the military so whoever wrote in about military yeah. funding because um again i have to be careful what i say but how can i put this let's just say in the in the former soviet union okay so there the soviets were much more open to speculative theory because i think they were so keen to get any advantage on the west yeah so if i had been doing this in russia i probably would have gotten funding because someone there again i don't want to diss a culture 
um, and I'm of Russian extraction, I should point out, that you know, if if someone thought that there were these ancient flying machines and there was some useful technology that we could grab and reinvent, mm -hmm. there'd be money thrown at it. But yeah. since you know, that's what we got to do is we got to convince yeah. the government that you know the the Hopi Native Americans had UFOs and right, exactly. You know, that's unfortunately the world of fantasy, if, not fact. But if we tell the U.S. government there's oil under Gunung Padang, we will drill. <laughs> It's different. Yeah, it's absolutely different. Indonesia will immediately experience rapid uh, democratization, but <laughs> I think it's already yeah. a democracy. <laughs> Just, uh, no, knock, no. knock. We're here to give you freedom. Um, <laughs> all it's going to cost you is this weird black liquid in the ground. All right. Well, that was the last of the super chats, and we are over by about 12 minutes, so I will not keep you any longer. But, Benjamin, thank you so much for coming on. This was fantastic. I got to learn a lot. I hope everybody else got to learn a lot. Um, you know, and like you said, your book is uh, Lost Knowledge. Subtitle? Uh, you're asking me the subtitle of my <laughs> own book? I, the... I, sh I should remember. No, no, it's fine. Lost knowledge, colon, the concept of vanished technologies and other human histories. Got it. Um, right. And it's a lot of fun. You can read descriptions of it on the internet. If you don't want to buy it, check it out at the library. Again, I make no money from this. I, I promote it because I want people to read and be interested and have fun conversations like this. So uh, yeah, it's, it's great. I, I want to thank you for hosting me and interviewing me and chatting with me, I should say. And hopefully we'll do this again sometime. Yeah, so. I had a great time. I would love to have you on when we have another another similar topic to cover. And we're going to be putting out a video on these Ancient Apocalypse episodes once a month, maybe twice a month. So we're probably going to have other opportunities to talk about some of the lost, lost technology and lost knowledge and belief systems and all of that. So, cool. yeah, I am, I, you know, here. Psyched, to, psyched to come across that at another time. And, you know... Uh, with that said, you know, thank you guys for all watching. I will see you on the next one. Thank you.